listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Whoa! What's up, podcast fam? Hey yo, what's going on, fam bam? Fam bam, thank you ma'am. Thank you ma'am. Wow, it is a new week, a new yeah, episode. We, we skipped a week. Um, no, we didn't. We yes, we did. Pulled a fast one. Just on you. we we tricked you. <laughs> no, we had some technical issues last week, and we went to record. Um, but I think we're all good now. Yeah, this we're is all good. We're back in the bed. Um, bed studio is a thing. I think this is our new thing. Yeah, because the thing is, is we have like a. It's not a full poster bed. It's a. What's the tech? That's what's the what's it called? Like a, I guess it's, it's like a, a canopy, canopy, yeah, a canopy bed. So we can actually connect like the the boom mics to the top yeah. of the canopy. It works so we have really those well. flexi boom mics um, you often see on podcasts, yeah, um, which we have attached to the, I guess, like scaffolding um, of the bed of the bed. So it's literally just hanging. There's no mic stands. It's like very minimal. Mm. If we wanted to, we could just fold these up. On the bed frame, <gasps> we could. And just permanently, we like, could do that. So yeah, um, for now we might <laughs> do this for however we'll see long. See how we go. It's pretty comfy. We yeah, we're we're, we're going to reconfigure the studio a bit and um, mess around with that, and uh, you know, yeah, all that figure all that out fun figure stuff. out what we want. Yeah. But yeah, welcome to another week in the podcast. If yes. you are new around here, we are the Australian duo called Best Served Cold. We drink wine and talk about crime. Mm-hmm. Our new thing is at the start of the episode, we warn you that we swear a yes. lot. That's not your vibe. Please exit through, through the back row, row F to your right. Yes. Promptly um, watch Sesame Street. Please don't leave us a one-star review because we swear it makes us cry. Yes. But yeah, we are Best Served Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. I am one of your excellent co-hosts, Laura, and I am here to tell you that if you're listening to this, this is your sign that you're stuck in the matrix. Everything around you is just a simulation. Get out while you still can. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) God. Uh, And I am Tama. Formerly, actually, I'm going to... I've actually... Wanted to do this for a bit, but it's no longer Tama J. Tama Tama Toa. Yeah, Tama Toa. Yeah, which I'm. It's kind of my musical name that I'm also integrating into my sort of stage name for most yeah, things. Continuity across all so platforms, man. I am Tama Toa, the other host, the artist formerly known as formerly known as Tama J. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Drop the J and added on two more letters. Very nice. I like it. Yeah. I like it. But uh, yeah, if, you, if you're new around here, welcome. Uh, you can follow us on all social media platforms at the BSC podcast. Uh, I post some pretty good memes, I think. I like to think they're pretty good on Instagram sure. particularly. We'll I occasionally remember to also post them on Facebook. Look, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm a bad millennial. <laughs> I'm not great at remembering to actually consistently post on social media, but uh, you know. We get there. I think the only other housekeeping thing I have for this week is that our merch designs, which I originally had up just before Christmas 2020, they were on a website. 
where you could only do t-shirts and it was for like a limited run, but I've now uploaded them on TeePublic, which is a like permanent run uh, of the designs and you can get them on like mugs and phone cases mm. and stickers and shit. So if you want to get some merch from and you missed the drop before Christmas last year, the link will be in our show notes. And, you know, we're getting married and our car mm-hmm. just shit itself. Yep. So we... <laughs> Please give us money. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Do you have any housekeeping to add, Tama? Um, Please send me pictures of your dogs and or cats. Or pigs or chickens or or anything that you own as an animal. I need it. I just need it. We need the serotonin people. I need that little little something. (laughs) Some, some. Yeah, get me through the week. (laughs) Just. Please just get me through yeah, the week. Just make anything to get me through the week. Yeah, uh, I don't think I have anything else no, to, that's it. to talk I, about. I don't have anything else. Um, Let's just jump, jump right into, into it. it. And then, as usual, if you are one of our longer term listeners and you mm-hmm. like to stick around to hear a shit talk, we yep. will be doing plenty of that. After the stories, but for now, let's just jump straight into it, shall we? So this one is a real doozy. Yeah, I'm excited to hear this one. I know we sort of say that with a lot of the cases, and most of the time they are very interesting cases and very unique cases, but this one I've wanted to do for a long time. It's about Jodie Ann Arias and her weird relationship and subsequent murder of Travis Alexander. Um, now the the real interesting thing, and um, I, we, I'm, we're not too sure about where we're going to go with our um, our uh, shaken not stirred show. Oh yeah, I forgot about that because yeah. now I also have my uni semester for you Americans college has started again as of this week, and I forgot to tell you this. I have a lecture at six thirty p.m. on a Friday. What evil! human Gross. would do that to someone. So I don't actually know when we're going to like record it yeah. or whatever. So we'll figure it out. But it basically um, there is an analysis of the interrogations that I wanted to do for whenever we do get to that, if we do. But I will be mostly focusing on the case itself, uh, her and her relationship and all the weird trivialities that's, that sort of encircle it. I would like to do the 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 after show again. It's just yes. it's literally finding time. Exactly. Uh, well, without uh, any further ado, Jody Ann Arias was born on the 9th of July in 1980 in Salinas, California. Now we usually do a bit of a backstory into these people and try to find like significant events or trigger points or something that shows and sheds some light on what helped you know, create this person and and whether or not there was someone who went through experiences and um, mental difficulties growing up and, you know, became who they are or whether there was just something in them that just clicked over. Mm. And there's nothing really significant in her childhood that stands out. Um, the only thing that's really worth mentioning is that... Um, that in the 11th grade, she dropped out of high school to pursue a career in photography that didn't really take off too well. So eventually she got another job at a hotel restaurant to pay the bills and she worked there for the next eight years. In uh, February 2006, she was about 26 years old. She started working in sales for a network marketing company called Prepaid Legal Group. 
It was here where she met fellow sales rep Travis Alexander. Travis was a 20-year-old practicing Mormon from Arizona. He had a part-time vocation as a motivational speaker as well as doing his um, sales repping. And uh, I've seen his videos, very impressive stuff, you know, not on the Tony Robbins scale for sure, but definitely up there. Well, Tony Robbins is the motivational speaker, not a salesman. Get your facts right, Tyler. That's what I said. That's, oh. that's I literally <laughs> just said that his job is a motivational speaker. Are you even fuck? You're I a host know. of the show and you're not even paying attention. So many things. In my my brain God! At the Shut up! Imagine if, like, we just get in this show and, like, it turns out no one listens listens to any of my cases. I've anyway. had lots of people say that they prefer you over me. Oh, so, great! Yeah, <laughs> isn't that a nice thing to say? Well, <laughs> yeah. One reviewer said that they couldn't get through the whole show because that annoying female narrator kept <laughs> interrupting. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that was that was me. Sorry. Lay into me, like just yeah. take my this tiny shred of self confidence <sighs> I had left. Sorry, yeah, I don't know how to approach you about it, but I just I thought maybe that would be the best way. <laughs> That's the best way. Yeah. Just shut the fuck up, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I get right. it. Anyway, so we've established he was a motivational speaker <laughs> as well as being a sales rep, and uh, often he was described as being a very charismatic person, and that he was. It didn't take long for Jody to take notice of him, and they met for the first time at a business conference in September of 2006. From uh, this point onwards, they started this really weird and uh, indifferent, uh, fluctuating relationship together. Jody was clearly in love with Travis, and Travis really wasn't reciprocating the same feelings. Uh, they were together for about five months officially. Before they broke up, and soon after the split, Jody moved from her grandparents' place in uh, Wairika, California, to an apartment just two blocks away from Travis's house in Mesa, Arizona. Yeah, a bit of a red flag, and, you know, Sweetheart's obviously not doing too well. She's, you know, an inch close to cutting her own bangs and other such things. Oh, honey, aren't we all? Yeah. So Travis and uh, the people around him... His friends, family, obviously see her as the, you know, crazy stalker ex-girlfriend who's trying to keep tabs on him. Uh, In what is probably not the best move on old Travis's part, he uh, agrees that while she's a crazy stalker, um, he continues to have sex with her on multiple occasions out of Of pure convenience. And it, it is a bit dirty and gross and a bit... You know, advantage taking for sure. Um, not to excuse anything that happened to anyone, you know, but it is very bit gross. Uh, so the reason why it was, I call it convenient, is because Jody would show up to his place unannounced and uninvited on multiple occasions, sometimes in the middle of the night, and every single time Travis would let her in. Uh, this continued for a while. I think I think it was about two years, give or take a few months. A long time Um, from like when she first moved, uh, you know, in in late 2000, in early 2007 to, so maybe about just over a year. I thought you were going to say like a month or two. No. So they broke up in, in, um, you know, five months after September 2006, right? So it's going into 2007. Uh, She moves 
uh, to there and then up until 2008, May. So for quite a while, Shit. quite a few months, over a year. Uh, and this just became routine for them. Every single time Travis would let, their, let her in, they'd have sex. And clearly neither party was really particularly happy or satisfied with the situation. Travis, you know, not really wanting anything to do with her, but it's convenient having her there for the sex. And, you know, Jody obviously being hopelessly in, in love with him. Uh, so while Travis was enjoying the convenient sex, he wanted Jody essentially out of his life. Um, according to the many different writings in Jody's diary, she had a firm belief that they were always meant to be together and one day they would be back together. In late May 2008, Travis had a work retreat planned to Cancun, Mexico, slated for t- July 10th. Everything was paid for by his employer and it allowed him to take someone with him. Jody found out about this and was hoping for Travis to bring her along oh, with honey. him. Oh, honey. Oh, sweetie. Oh, baby. Yes. Although I shouldn't say that about her, should I? She's not a very nice person. No. Uh, well, obviously, she didn't do a very good thing um, and was willing to throw a lot of people on the bus to, to plead her innocence and still yeah. pleads her innocence. So, you know. Uh, instead, of the last week of May, it was apparent that Travis was taking someone else with him, fellow Mormon girl Mimi Hall, someone who Travis had always been interested in dating for quite a while. And, funny enough, someone who didn't reciprocate the same feelings towards Travis. So, this, you know, it's like that scene from How I Met Your Mother where someone's on the hook. Yeah. You know, a little bit like that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, upon finding this out, Jody loses her fucking mind. She's heartbroken. Uh, after a long time of hoping to finally be together with Travis again and the feeding on the scraps that he was obviously giving her, she, something just clicks in her. Um, you know, either she knew what she was going to do and was attempting to justify the thought or at the very least, the thought had entered her mind. Mm. June 4th, 2008, six days before Travis was set to leave for Mexico, Jody once again shows up unannounced at his residence. The only thing that we can really know for sure is they had sex and they took several photos of each other using Travis's new digital camera. At around 5 p.m., Travis took a shower while Jody began taking several photos of him using the same camera. At some point during these photos being taken... Jody proceeds to stab Travis a total of 27 times. Oh. She also sliced his throat. Oh. And shot him in the face. That was a... I really that wasn't expecting that escalation. Yes. From... Okay. We've just gone. We've just dove straight in. Oh, yes. The autopsy reveals that Alexander's hands, uh, Travis's Alexander's hands, had defensive wounds on them. So yeah. he was trying to grab the knife. Uh, he had a, Ooh, quite a few lacerations. I don't know what it is about the hands that freaks me nerves. out more it's than actually being yeah. stabbed. That's weird. While this was happening, Travis's camera took two accidental photos. The first being as Jody dropped the camera while she was attacking Travis, and the second being when she kicked the camera away, seemingly after attacking Travis um, and moving the body. Right. So the part uh, with, with part of the photo. Travis's body is actually in frame. I think it's like his upper thigh and uh, lower mid-torso. You can't see a lot because the lighting's terrible, but you can definitely see blood. Jesus. Yeah. 
Jodie spent around 45 minutes trying to clean down the crime scene to make sure none of her DNA was left behind. Now, while that seems like a long time, it's really not. Yeah. It's a very short amount of time to spend wiping down a lot of blood. Yeah, because blood gets into everything. Yeah, well, this is the thing. This includes... This 45 minutes, this includes wiping down Travis's body with a glass of water and a cloth, as well as deleting the pictures in Travis's camera and putting the camera in the washing machine. Wait, the, she put the camera she put the in the, camera washing, in the machine. washing machine. Right. I don't think she turned it on, but she put it in. Okay. Trying to hide the camera. Right. Um, now, afterwards, she drove out to the desert. And decided to leave Travis a few voicemails in an attempt to place herself far away from his residence and give herself an alibi. She drove out to another man's house in Utah, uh, a man called Ryan Burns, and she spent the night. Ryan Burns would later go on to testify that nothing was off about her behavior and they, they only had sex. And that was about it. Uh, although her, him and a few others that met uh, her in Utah after the killing happened, they did know that she had bandages on her hands and she wore long sleeves on days when it was very hot. She told stories about how she received the cuts on her hands um, and Ryan Burns was told that they were from an injury while working at a place called Margar- Margaritaville. Now, Sounds as, like uh, my type of place. Yeah. Now, as nice as that... You know, restaurant sounds. During the trial, was revealed by um, uh, the Siskiyou County, California. Sorry, I cannot pronounce that. Um, Authorities that uh, they revealed that there was no such restaurant in ever. It it never existed. Right. Uh, And that, in fact, at the time of the killing, she was working at a place called Casa Ramos in Wairika. So, nothing to do with a place called Margaritaville. Uh, so, after Travis was murdered, his body was discovered five days later by Mimi and her friends the day before they were set to leave for Cancun. Okay. His body had been, you know, obviously sitting there for quite a while. And um, I read the autopsy reports, saw the photos. It's terrible mm. that he had to go that long without, you know... Um, some sort of dignity. Yeah. Um, it's really uh, horrible. Um, so, it, obviously, Mimi uh, worried about Travis's well-being. It's the day before the trip and he's she's had no contact with him. Uh, he also missed an important conference call uh, during the night of June 4th, 2008, at 7 p.m. that he was supposed to take with his uh, job. So Mimi spends a few minutes knocking at the door, ringing the doorbell, and no answer. She grows increasingly more anxious and uh, after she realizes that Travis had been talking about a stalker from time to time. So after speaking to a friend of his over the phone uh, who suggested what to do, she entered his house to the garage to look for him. Eventually, they found a key to his bedroom uh, and her, their friends open up the door and walk in. After she hears her friends saying that they see blood everywhere, she immediately stops looking and calls the police. Jesus. Um, obviously, she didn't want to go inside, didn't want to see. Yeah, uh, smart girl. I don't think she did see anything. Um, I hope not. Yeah. An interesting thing just I wanted to mention as well is on May 28, 2008, a burglary occurred at the residence of the Arius's of um, 
uh, Jody Aris's grandparents, who with whom she was living within uh, Yreka, California. A 25 caliber gun and a few other objects were taken. The grandparents' gun was one of the items that was never recovered. The This was later used in the prosecution's argument that the burglary was staged by uh, Jody Arias mm. and the stolen gun was the one that was used to shoot Alexander post-mortem. Right. After the news broke of his death the next day, Jody calls the police to offer any help that she can in the investigation. Uh, why any murderers do this? Because it happens a lot. Um, well, because I can see that their reasoning that they were like, oh, well, an innocent person would never call the police and offer help. But it just it just always fucks them over. Yeah. Like, always. Um, not, to, not to give anyone any tips or anything, but uh, she, uh, she... So she'd call, um, she offers to help the police in any way. She, her phone call is then transferred to lead detective Esteban Flores of the Mesa PD... Uh, the only thing really worth noting in the call is that Jody agreed to providing a sample of her DNA. Right. Uh, again, why? I have no idea, but we'll just go with it. Over the following month, detectives managed to recover the deleted photos from Travis's camera and found Jody's DNA all over the crime scene because mm. she spent 45 minutes trying to clean it down. And, you know, she, she's really not doing well here. Um,. During this time, unaware of the evidence stacking against her, Jody would go on to post pictures of her and Travis on Facebook, along with emotional messages titled to Travis himself. Uh, she even went on to go send uh, flowers with a letter expressing her grief over Travis's death to Travis's family. On July 15th, the Mesa police launched their, their case against Jody. This came 41 days after his murder. So they're like right on her. They they know it's her. Right. They they the they she agreed to the DNA test. They ran the DNA test, mixing with DNA they found at the crime scene. They know it's her. Mm-hmm. Her okay. DNA's all over the place. They've seen the photos of them on the same night. Photos have uh, a digital stamp, of course. Um, you can see the date and time they took place. Yeah, of course. And the ones with his body post mortem or on the same night that they're taking explicit photos of each other. Yeah. And she, it's obviously her. Um, so Detective Flores, the very detective that she spoke to on the phone, was the one who conducted the interrogation on Jody. Uh, Wairika County Police arrested Jody at her grandparents' house on at 7.35 a.m. And the only thing they told her is that they had a warrant for her arrest without any further inf- information. She was placed in handcuffs and didn't once ask where she was going or why she was being arrested for the entire drive over to the police station. She was extra. Yeah, honey, to, honey knows why yeah. she's being arrested. So it was here. He was. Um. Sh- uh, she was interrogated by two different uh, detectives, which you know I would love to go into on another time. Mm. Uh, so in September. F- the 5th of September, 2008, she was extradited to Arizona where she pled not guilty um, a couple of days later on September 11th. She could not get her story straight. So she initially told police that she had not been at the home at the time of death of Alexander, of uh, Travis's death. She later told police that um, she made up this story about how two intruders had broken into his house 
while they were there and they murdered him and attacked her and um, decided to let her go but threatened her family and told and her she, she never her. thought to go to the police or tell it, anyone his yeah. body was dead yeah it was the way she describes it is literally like something out of a movie like he he takes her license and goes i know where you live if you tell anyone i'll kill you and your family jesus it's really fucking bad uh and then that then delves into a completely separate story of how she killed Alexander in self-defense and that she was a victim of months and months of domestic violence. Right. Yeah. This all comes up during the whole trial phase. Like, she tells police one story um, about, like, the uh, the intruders and that doesn't work, so then she delves onto the... You know, domestic violence yeah. thing. She's and like, I'm just going to keep trying until I find something that fits. I'll, I'll show you the video of the defense with their arguments because it's like, with the, with the help of hindsight, obviously, you can look at it and go, that's dumb. But I still think even if I didn't know if she did kill him or not, I would still read this defense's arguments and go, what the fuck? Where did you pull this from? Well, her defense lawyer was probably like, girl, you are not giving me much to work with. You know what's funny is on multiple occasions, they asked to be let off the case. <laughs> they were like, it was so bad. They were like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Jodie's had like seven lawyers take stress leave. Just like, I can't deal with this chick. They had the, she had the same lawyers. She couldn't, they couldn't get off the case. <laughs> and they tried on multiple occasions. Uh, and... A fun little side note, there's an entire forum of people who believe in the last theory that I mentioned, the self-defense domestic violence theory. Okay. There's a huge forum of people who think she's innocent. Really? Despite the 24-ish stab wounds. Yeah. So is there any like, because I know sometimes you get some like wild theories and then there's, but there's like some weird things that will kind of like support the wild theory yeah, is there sure. anything that actually supports the wild theory or it's just a no crazy there's no theory? history of domestic violence against her uh there's no history of domestic violence against any of his past relationships you know his family you should the the trial is very interesting to watch because during this argument the defense argument the camera sometimes pans on his family travis's yeah. family and they're just rolling their eyes. They're like, what the fuck? This guy's a Mormon. Hmm. Like, there's no way. It, you know. Yeah. Like, there's no evidence. Not even, like, no substantial evidence. There's no evidence whatsoever. Um, it's it's quite clearly, you know, just a, a polite yeah, sort of defense. Clutching at straws. Yeah. Um, and if you don't, you know... If it wasn't already obvious from the fact that she changed the story three times, you know, she wasn't there, she was there, and then she was, you know, uh, defending herself. Anyway, the trial commenced on December the 10th of 2012, so quite a few years after all this. Um, it was a very long uh, trial. Mm, it sounds uh, like it. Yeah. In the opening arguments of um, January the 2nd, 2013, the prosecutor, Juan Martinez, sought the death penalty immediately while Jody's defense argued that uh, Travis's death was justifiable homicide committed in self-defense. Uh, 
So okay. that was their immediate defense. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned before, uh, a witness testified that Jody had visited him and said she had cuts on her hands on broken glass while working at a restaurant called Margaritaville. Uh, a detective you know, found out that there never such place existed and she was in fact working at a place called Casa Romos. Now, Marguerite, uh, can I, sorry, I, I know on. that the people apparently don't like it when I interrupt you, it's fine. but can I just say that Margaritaville just sounds like something you make up in a panic? Well, it's a, I'm pretty sure it's a, um, it's an appliance. Margaritaville is an appliance. Oh, is made, it? Yeah, frozen margaritas. Because it sounds like something that if someone was like, how do you get those cuts? You'd be like, oh, I was, uh, I was, Mar- I was at work, Mar- uh, and I dropped a, I was at behind the bar and I dropped a glass and it, uh, yeah. they're like, oh, Johnny, I didn't know you worked at a bar. What bar yeah. do you work at? Margaritaville. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like a frozen slushy machine. But it does sound a bit like something you'd be like. Totally. Gin Street. Yeah. It's like, where do you work? I work at a place called Smeg. It's like that, essentially. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, they, they, you know, the detective testifies officially that there's no such place exists and that she was actually working at Casa Ramos. Uh, Jody takes a stand in her own defense starting on, <laughs> yeah, on February the 4th, 2013, testifying for a total of 18 days. That's a lot. And you can see it slowly breaking down as well. Mm. On the first day of her 18-day testimony, uh, she told of being much like the um, the, the Casey Anthony Oh, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She tells of her violent history with her parents, how she was abused and um, this source starting around when she was about seven years old. Mm. On the second day of her stand, she tells uh, that... Jody and Travis's sex life included oral and anal sex. She said the anal sex was painful for her the first time they experienced it together and that uh, she considered oral and anal sex to be real forms of sex. Alexander, uh, Travis did not, and he believed that these forms of sexual activity, in contrast to vaginal sex, were not technically against the Mormon rules. Um, right. These are all obviously part of her character destruction um, ploys. Yeah. Um, now, it's worth noting that uh, the first few days of her, de- her defense were solid. She had a lot of time to, to you know, sit by herself and conjure up these stories. She had mm. years mm. before when she was originally arrested to when she tested, she had to defend yeah. herself. She had literal years to... to, to conjure up these stories and work with the defense attorneys. Um, so it, it starts off very strong. Uh, she She's very smart. The prosecutors, uh, you know, throwing her, you know, softballs and um, not not probably curveballs. Curveballs, yeah, sure. Um, and she's just like solid as a rock, like fucking ready to go. Um, she, uh, she says that eventually they led... They had vaginal sex, but less often. Um, a phone sex tape was played in which uh, he, in which Travis said um, he wanted to zip tie her to a tree while she was dressed as Little Riding Hood, and she testified that Travis secretly found young boys and girls sexually attracted, attractive and tried to help him with these urges. Right. So she's using this phone sex tape 
as a way to sort of character, yeah, to yeah. sort of characterize him as a pedophile. Uh, she testifies that their relationship grew increasingly violent and abusive, and at some point leading to Travis kicking her and body slamming her onto the floor. And she even displayed a crooked ring finger to support her claims of the abuse. Right. Um, that's kind of all there is, though. Uh, this all apparently led up to the final instance of the abuse where Jody had to kill Travis with the gun in self-defense. Now, a quick side note. In two instances, a psychologist and a psychotherapist both thought Jody to be suffering from PTSD. And they strongly believe that she was the victim of domestic abuse. The, f- okay. the psychologist, uh, Richard Samuels, thought she attacked Travis in a fight-or-flight response to abuse. The thing about him and his thoughts, his credibility was attacked by the prosecution when he accused him of forming a relationship with Jody, which Richard Samuels, the psychologist, later testified that he did share compassion for Jody. Mm. A uh, separate uh, psychologist, Janine DeMarty, testified for the prosecution that Jody did not suffer from PTSD or amnesia like she claimed she didn't remember what she what had happened mm. uh, and that she found no evidence of Travis abusing Jody uh, instead she said that our, uh, Jody was suffering from borderline personality disorder showing signs of immaturity and an and, uh, unable sense of identity unstable sense of identities rather right uh, now, people who suffer from such a uh, disorder uh, often have a terrified feeling of being abandoned, and this is one of the arguments that she used uh, to tell the jurors. Mm. And, um, you know, we've done a bit of uh, study on um, borderline personality disorder. We've done you know, cases where people have had, uh, you know, that's been a relevant factor in um, a, a case with, with with someone who's we've yeah, studied. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it does seem like uh, a plausible theory. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know. Uh, in closing arguments on May 4th, uh, Jody's defense argued that the premeditation theory uh, didn't make any sense and uh, quoted as, I'm quoting him as saying, uh, what happened in that moment in time the relationship, the relationship of chaos that ended in chaos as well. There is nothing about what happened on June 4th in the bathroom that looks planned. Couldn't it also be that after everything they went through in that relationship, she simply snapped? Ultimately, if Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it's the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. In uh, his rebuttal, the prosecutor Juan Martinez described the extent uh, and variety of Travis's wounds. Um, and a quote from him, there is no evidence that he ever laid a hand on her ever. Nothing indicates that this is anything less than a slaughter. There was no way to appease this woman who just wouldn't leave him alone. On May 8th, 2013, after 15 hours of deliberation, Jody was found guilty of first degree murder. Out of 12 jurors, five jurors found her guilty on first-degree premeditated murder, and seven jurors found her guilty on both first-degree premeditated murder and felony murder. Uh, As the guilty verdict was read, Jody struggled to keep back tears as 
Travis's family smiled and hugged each other. And um, in fact, quite a few people outside the courtroom began celebrating and cheering. Mm. So following the first degree murder conviction, the prosecution was required to convince the jury that the murder was cruel, heinous or depraved in order for them to determine whether or not she was eligible for the death penalty. Now, this is called the aggravation phase of the trial. And okay. this started on, the, on May 15, 2013. Uh, the only witness was the medical examiner who performed the autopsy. Jody's attorneys, who, like I said uh, previously, by now have asked several times to step down from the case, gave only brief opening statements and closing arguments in which they said the adrenaline rushing through uh, Travis's body must have prevented him from feeling too much pain during his death. And that was about it. Yeah. Okay. Not a, you know, they're, a, you know, they're in a, they're at a, uh, you know, a roadblock. Here. They're at the throw your hands in the air. Yeah. I don't know. Throw your head back. He wasn't in that much pain, I guess. Um, prosecutor Juan Martinez showed uh, in his argument, he just showed photos of the corpse and the crime scene to the jury. And he paused for two minutes, two minutes of silence to illustrate how long it took for Alexa- Travis Alexander to die at Jody's hands. Jesus. That's heavy. Yeah. And effective. Oh, yeah. So just Have you ever tried to sit awkwardly in yes. silence for two minutes? Two minutes is a long time. It doesn't sound like a long time until you just try and sit. And be silent that's one for of those, two minutes. That's one of those, like, oh, shit moments. Uh, it, like, really heavy. Uh, after less than three hours of consideration, uh, the jury determined that Jody Arias was eligible for the death penalty. The penalty phase began on May 16, 2013, when prosecutors called Travis's family members to offer their victim impact statements in an effort to convince the jury that Jody's crime merited the death sentence. On May 23, 2013, the sentencing phase of Jody's trial resulted in a hung jury, prompting the judge to declare a mistrial for that phase. Uh, apparently, the vote was somewhere, uh, I believe it was 8 to 4, in favor for the death. Uh, after the mistrial was declared and the jury discharged, the jury foreman stated that he believed Jody was mentally abused, uh, but that had not been enough to, to excuse her crimes. Now, as of April 23rd, 2013, the defense cost for Jody Aris had reached almost $1.7 million Ooh. paid by taxpayers. A lot of cheddar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now she's... In jail, that's all there is to it. Right. The the details leading it leading um, up to where they've gotten with the death penalty, very hazy. Um, you know, I, I I'm not too certain what happened. I think because of the mistrial, might have gotten scrapped. But she's currently in prison, uh, and there's been many a books written about her and her story, and the death of Travis Alexander, and. Uh, if you go into Murderpedia, I think there's a tab to look at the books. Uh, okay. I encourage you to look at some of the covers because, holy fuck, some of them look terrible. Like terrible design, or like, like you know how, you know how like there's those old animations from like the two thousands, like yes, uh, I don't know, like a an advertisement for like a yogurt commercial. 
yeah, and yeah. it's like really terrible animation, like out of place shit. Yeah, it's like that, but on a book cover. Right. Okay. Like some of them look god awful. Okay, I'll and have to check it out. That's all the. That's all I have to say about that. And that is the story of Jody Arias and Travis Alexander. Well done. It's a, a very uh, interesting case, and it's where the uh, famous quote in her interrogation comes from where she says, well, all my other ex-boyfriends are alive. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. honey. It, it really does um, break my heart when these, uh, you know, murderers and um, the people that we do the cases on throw their families into the defense claims and arguments, you know, like discredit their own parents just to save their own lives and their own selves from sentencing. It's just really sickening, to be honest. Yeah. Well, look, I don't want to brag, but uh, I think this, I think my case for this week is uh, is is sickening. I think if we're going to use right. if we're going to use a word, it's uh, it's sickening, sickening and not the and, good way and Got awful and <clears throat> and horrible and disgusting. And oh, hooray. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So this week, yes. I'm going to be discussing one that I've wanted to do for a while, but I've kind of put off because it's just kind of not like anything that involves like the sexual abuse of children. I'm just like, mm, yeah, it's a very heavy, maybe no, heavy, very heavy thing. But I decided that I finally wanted to do it uh, mainly because one of the killers is has recently been in the news, so it's it's kind of an interesting case for that reason. Okay. So this week I'm doing uh, Rosemary Pauline West and her husband Fred West. So they are both English serial killers who worked together, and together they tortured and murdered nine, potentially more young women, many of which who were their own children. Oh, dear. And um, their victims were Charmaine West, eight years old, Catherine West, 27, Linda Carol uh, Go, 19, Caroline Cooper, 15, Lucy Partington, 21, Teresa Saigon Thala, 21, Shirley Hubbard, 15, Juanita Mott, 18, Shirley Robinson, 18, Alison Chambers, 16, and Heather West, 16. So I'll do their backstories one at a time. So born Rosemary Letts. Uh, Rosemary was born in 1953 in Devon, UK, to parents William and Daisy. She was born into a very large but very poor family, and she was the fifth of seven children. So Damn. she sort of came towards the end. Right. So that's yeah. that's that's the that's the uh, the point in childbearing where y- you you just give up. You've hit the malat phase. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you get to five out of seven, and you're like just. Yeah, what are you doing? Again, you're starting a fucking Brady bunch. I'm not really a kid fan, so I'd probably be done after the first one. Yeah. I mean, you do you, but whatever. So an interesting tidbit about Rosemary, her mother suffered from some pretty serious depression, and as part of her treatment, she underwent electroconvulsion therapy or, you know, electric shock treatment uh, while pregnant. And so many speculate that this could have potentially affected the fetus while in utero. Obviously, nothing's really been confirmed, but a lot of people kind of speculate the potential of that. Yeah, I question that 
Mm. So with Rosemary having a great deal of difficulty in school as well as suffering from frequent bouts of violent behavior growing up, her weight was also a constant issue for her as a child and this also resulted in lots of bullying from school peers to which Rosemary would normally respond in a violent manner. Okay. So when she was a teenager, her parents divorced and after living with her mother for six months, she moves in with her father who is a paranoid schizophrenic and also incredibly violent. Right. So throughout her time living with her father, both herself and her sister Patricia were both violently assaulted, both physically and sexually. And this most likely has led to Rosemary's own fascination with the human body and her proclivity for sexual abuse of her own. So as her body begins to develop, she takes on this habit of parading around the house in front of her younger brothers completely naked. She would also molest her own brother Graham on multiple occasions. Her father was incredibly strict on her dating, and so instead of dating men her own age, which would obviously be, you know, if someone saw her out with a boy her age Mm -hmm. and it got back to her father, so she'd often instead seek the company of much older men. And it wasn't long after her parents' divorce that she meets Fred West shortly after her 15th birthday, he at the time, 27. Oh, dear. Yes. Okay. So Fred, 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 Fred West, who has an equally disturbing past, uh, Fred was born 1941. Also, I'm just going to quick side note. Normally when I do these, I don't refer to these shitbags by their first names, but considering they both have the same surname, it's not possible for me to just call them West. So I'm calling them by their first names. So Fred was born 1941 in Hertfordshire to Walter and oddly enough, another Daisy, a different Daisy, but they both had mothers called Daisy. Fred was also born into a poor family with lots of siblings. Fred was one of eight children, but two of these children prior to him had passed away. So he was the first of eight that, you know, survived past being a a baby. Damn, okay. So it was said that because of this, he was his mother's favorite, you know, because he would have, I guess, been like the miracle child that. Oh, yeah. You've got to imagine what she went through and finally getting that one kid. Yeah. And then having six more after that. So being quite poor, his family put a big emphasis on assisting around the farm. And so his school history was patchy and he was barely literate. At age 15, he left school entirely to work as a laborer. Now, Fred has claimed that he had an incredibly sexual childhood with his mother encouraging him to take parts in acts of bestiality from as young as 12. However, later in life, after his capture, one of Fred's siblings has labeled this as like complete farce. So it was said that Fred never really developed a socially acceptable way of approaching women. And he would be known to aggressively approach women in local pubs and start grabbing and fondling them, seeing them basically as objects for him to use rather than actual people. It's not on Fred. In 1961, Fred's 13-year-old sister Kitty confessed to their mother that for over a year Fred has been molesting and raping her. Fred is arrested and tried, but after Kitty refuses to testify, the case falls apart. His family, though, does uh, kick him out and disown him, and they fall out of contact completely for quite a while. So I really don't want to spend too much time on this piece of shit. Um, And he was honestly, he has one of the more fucked up backstories in terms of what he does even prior to meeting Rosemary. The only person I can really think of that equals him is Paul Bernardo, who oh, okay. raped 
and attacked a lot of women prior to meeting yeah. Carla Homolka. <laughs> so I'm going to sort of try and breeze through it uh, because the combined story, once we get to it, is really awful enough as it is and I don't want to get too sort of bogged down in his backstory. So Fred marries Catherine Costello when he is age 21 um, and at the time of their meeting, Catherine is already pregnant with a different man's child. And in 1963, her daughter Charmaine is born. In 1964, Catherine and Fred have a child together called Anne Marie. Fred is awful to the children, though. Whenever he's home, they are kept in their bunk beds, which have bars installed, technically making Jesus. them giant cages. And they're only allowed out when Fred leaves the house for work. Fred also routinely beats both Catherine and his two children. In 1965, Fred, quote, accidentally runs over and kills a young boy, but is for some reason that I couldn't really find cleared of all charges. Now, through the family nanny, Fred and Catherine meet and befriend a woman called Anne McFall, and eventually she becomes obsessed with Fred, and after his marriage with Catherine disintegrates, he begins to sleep with Anne, eventually impregnating her. In 1967, at the age of 18 and roughly eight months pregnant, Anne McFall vanishes into thin air. She's never reported missing by Fred and eventually her dismembered remains are located with her body having been carefully dissected and many of her bones missing entirely. Her unborn child cut from her womb. At the time, Fred is not charged with her death. So... Shortly after her 15th birthday at a bus station, Rosemary Letts meets Fred West, again aged 27. Yuck. Gross. So initially she's completely turned off by him and thinks he's homeless, but her herself being a little bit overweight and having been bullied her entire life, he compliments and lavishes flattery on her and eventually over the course of a few days of them speaking, he wears her down. Rosemary's parents do not like Fred one bit. They originally forbid her from dating him, but she goes against their wishes. And after a few weeks after meeting Fred, she leaves her job to become a nanny for Fred's children on the proviso that she'll be paid the same as her old job. So her parents won't suspect that she's quit. Right. So initially, Rose treats the two girls with love, encouraging Fred to do the same. However, this quickly falls apart And in 1970, Rosemary gives birth to her first child with Fred that they name Heather. So at this point, Fred has been in and out of jail for various, uh, you know, like petty crimes and and more serious ones like robbery and and stealing cars and things. Been a bad boy. And Charmaine and Emery have been in and out of social services depending on, from what I understood from the articles I read, depending on literally Fred's level of how much he can be bothered to give a shit taking care of his children. Like he'll just be like, you know what, this week, don't feel like being a dad, go to social services. So it all kind of seems okay. And then it goes downhill real fast in 1971 when Fred is again in jail for theft of car tires. Uh, So Rosemary is just 17 and looking after three children, two from Fred's previous relationships and one that they have together. This is when the two girls from Fred's prior relationships are subjected to abuse of all kinds, with Charmaine in particular bearing a large brunt of this, potentially due to her refusal to cry or display any sort of fear of Rosemary. One of Charmaine's friends, Tracy, tells a story of the abuse, stating that one time she shows up to the apartment to, you know, hang out with Charmaine unannounced. She walks in and sees Charmaine 
gagged, bound, and naked standing on a chair while Rosemary beats her with a wooden spoon. So Charmaine's murder is unclear and and quite tragic. Testimony from witnesses as well as forensic reports point to Rosemary having done it herself while Fred was incarcerated during 1971. Charmaine is first reported to be missing by her same friend Tracy, who is abruptly told by Rosemary that Charmaine has gone to live with her mother, and this is basically the story that she tells anyone who asks where Charmaine has gone. Right. When she is initially murdered, her body is stored in the cellar of the West home until Fred is released from prison and buries her naked body in the family backyard. Fred West is adamant that he never did anything to her corpse, but forensic reports show that she has many missing bones, which comes to be known as a signature of Fred's because he'd keep them as souvenirs. So throughout this whole thing, Catherine, Fred's first wife, has kept in sporadic contact with the West's through her children and it's in 1971 when she's really concerned about the well-being of her daughter so she goes to the West's Midland home to confront Fred about his treatment of Charmaine and this is the last time she's ever seen or heard of her body is later found in letterbox field dismembered and buried in plastic bags it's surmised that she was strangled while in Fred's car at their home And at this stage, despite having committed two murders somewhat together, Fred and Rosemary are still not married. And so in 1972, they are officially wed with no friends or family present aside from one of Fred's brothers. Uh, And in June of the same year, so June 1972, the West's second child, May, is born. So it's after the birth of their second child and their struggling finances, Fred encourages Rosemary to start sex work, which she does working from one of the upstairs rooms in their home. It's also then she begins to have sex with other women, and these would mostly be women who resided in the other rooms of their home, which they had rented out as like bed sits, like a a lodgement. So they basically had a two-story house. They kind of boarded off the bottom story, so it was just their home and it, it, it was their private area, and then the upstairs were like lodgements. Right. So it's here that her sadistic sexual desires start to really show themselves. She would often push the women past the boundaries of what they wanted, suffocating them, using uncomfortable toys, and then mocking them if they displayed any sort of fear or discomfort. And this is when Fred and Rosemary also begin having threesomes and it becomes evident to any woman who partakes that Fred in particular enjoys sadistic acts of pain and bondage. The torture also begins to get worse and worse for the West children. Between the years of 1972 and 1992, uh, amongst the brood which grows bigger and bigger and bigger, The children are admitted a total of 31 times to the hospital for various injuries, which are always reported as accidents, but now known to be the result of the torture they faced at home. That's horrible. Yeah. So that's 31 times across 20 years and across eight children. That's that's so bad. Mm. In 1972, the first documented act of sexual assault occurs to eight-year-old Anne-Marie, who was forced into the household cellar, stripped and raped by her father, Fred... Re- Fr- oh, my God, I can't say his name. Fred West. Fred Ralph. Over the year, these assaults continue with Rosemary also assaulting Anne-Marie. 
At 13, Anne, Anne is forced to partake in prostitution alongside Rosemary, who at this stage, from what I can tell, is doing it quite willingly. Uh, with any of Anne's clients being told that she's 16. Rosemary stays in the room for each client to ensure she doesn't reveal her real age or try to seek any help from the men that go to visit her. Speculated that Anne is raped as many as 300 times by her father and eventually contracts syphilis from him. Jesus. When Anne moves out to live with her boyfriend to, you know, escape the abuse, uh, the abuse basically just moves from Anne to the next, uh, the um, next of their daughters, which is Heather and Mae West. Yeah. The same year the awful abuse of um, Anne begins, the Wests take in Caroline Owen. So, sorry, this story kind of like flip-flops back, back and forth in, in the timeline because it's really – convoluted to there's a lot of parts to it there's a lot of different parts so when Anne Marie is about eight the family takes in uh, Caroline Owen as a nanny to help look after the children and perform household duties at the time she is taken in Caroline is 17 and is picked up by the Wests one night while hitchhiking when Caroline asks about the constant stream of men coming into the family home Rosemary explains that she works as a masseuse But eventually they can't help themselves and and Fred and Rosemary both begin to make obscene sexual advances towards Caroline. Freaking out, as you would, she leaves and the Wests apologise for their behaviour and offer to drive her home. So believing them, she gets in the backseat of their car with Rosemary who begins to touch her inappropriately. When Caroline tries to escape, Fred repeatedly punches her until she's unconscious. She's then taken back to the West home, drugged, bound, and assaulted over an arduously long period of time by both Rosemary and Fred. The next day, the Wests, being the absolute fucking psychos they are, they untie her and they're like, hey, do you want to keep working for us as a nanny? What? Yeah. So they're like, we know we just tortured you all night, but you want to you wanna keep... Mopping our floors. Oh, my God. Okay. So despite their threats from the evening prior of killing her and burying her in the cellar, being the smart fucking girl that she is, she says yes. So, you know, sensing that she can use this as a chance to escape. Yeah. So she goes upstairs and she begins to clean the home. And then as soon as she's left alone, she runs escapes the West's home and returns to her house. Her mother, seeing her wounds, eventually gets her to confide in her what's happened. And while the West's are initially charged with assault, rape, and actual bodily harm, by the time the trial comes, Fred has partially managed to convince the court magistrates that the acts were consensual, and Caroline is also too frightened and traumatized to testify. So all charges related to the sexual assault are dropped. Jesus. They are still charged though with actual bodily harm and are fined. Guess how much? God. Well, like five bucks. Fifty pounds. Oh my god, what the fuck? The heartbreaking thing is when Caroline hears of this, I from what I could read, she does survive, but she does attempt to commit suicide. The poor girl. That's got to be so rough. Yeah. Like just... 50 pounds. The the idea of knowing they're out there as well. Yeah. You know. Just, it's... Look, it's only going to get worse. I'm just warning you. Fantastic. So it's from this point that 
things very clearly escalate in a big way and they, you know, Fred and Rosemary together start committing conscious planned murders. Previously, the murders have sort of been almost reactionary. Uh, So, you know, Rosemary, it's speculated, kills Charmaine, you know, in a fit of rage when she's done something wrong or something. But now they're they're actually, you know, hunting, picking up women and, and purposely doing it. So Linda Go is um, 19 years old when she comes to 25 Cromwell Street as she is at the time seeing uh, two of the men who are lodging there. So 25 Cromwell Street is the West's address. Sorry, I should have clarified that. So on the 19th of April, she moves into the lodging and just one day later, Rose and Fred tell other lodgers that Linda couldn't stay due to disagreements with other tenants, although other sources say that they said it was because she'd found work, so she'd moved elsewhere. So this is one day after she moves in. Man. When Linda's mother comes to search for her, she's told the same story that she's found work and moved elsewhere. Rosemary, whilst telling Linda's mother this story, is wearing Linda's clothes. Oh, that is so fucked up. It's years later that Linda's body is found in a cavity beneath the garage of Cromwell with the duct tape still wrapped around her skull and tubes inserted in her nose that allowed her to breathe. So they've covered up the entire bottom half of her face with duct tape so she can't scream. Shit. But put, like, tubes up her nose so she doesn't die so they can continue to torture her. God damn. So Linda had been tied up, tortured, raped, and eventually strangled, dismembered, and buried. In his what came to be known as Signature, several of her bones were missing, which Fred kept as keepsakes. Over the next 17 months, Fred and Rosemary continued the same pattern with a further five women who were all dismembered and buried in the same method. The only difference in their deaths being that forensic reports indicate as time progresses, the torture and pain suffered by each woman only becomes worse and more prolonged. After the murder of Juanita Mott in 1975, the Wests concrete over the floor where their victims were buried and convert it into a bedroom for their children. Oh my god! This is like this is like a Russian. I told you, it just a gets Russian worse. Doll of fucked upness. It just gets so much <laughs> worse. So it's believed that they then stopped for around three years uh, and their final known murder occurs in 1979 with Alison Chambers, who was only 16 at the time of her murder. So when his daughter, Anne-Marie, ran away from home, as I said, we're just flip-flopping in time here. So Fred turns his attention aggressively to two of his own other daughters, Heather and Mae West. He commits horrific acts of sexual abuse, which I am just not willing to go into details about. Yeah, for sure. At the age, if you really like, feel the absolute need to read about what happened, it's it's all on the internet. But I I'm not I'm not doing that. Yeah. So at the age of 16, on the 18th of June, 1987, Heather has applied for a cleaning job at a holiday camp, hoping that she'll get a job and she can just fucking get out of that house. And it's on the 18th of June where she receives her official rejection for the role. And she's obviously heartbroken because she's been hanging on this thing to get her the fuck out. So the next day, her siblings go to school as normal, and when they come home, Heather is nowhere to be found. The Wests initially tell the other children that Heather has gotten the job. 
Then they changed the story and said that she's eloped with a lover. Then they changed the story and said that she'd run away. Then when her siblings are like, we should probably report this to the police, they changed the story again and say that she's been involved in a credit card fraud scheme so they can't involve the police. In actual fact, Heather has been murdered by her own parents while attempting to refuse her father's sexual advances. In 1992, their house of horrors finally begins to unravel. Another one of the West children, Louise, who was 13 at the time, is subjected to her father's rape. After this occurs multiple times over the space of weeks, Louise confides in one of her friends who instantly tells their mother, who in turn anonymously reports it to the police. Thanks to her brave testimony and a search of the home by police, which uncovers a plethora of sexual toys and homemade and commercial porn tapes, all the children are taken from the West's custody into foster home and medical examinations of all children reveal extensive physical and sexual abuse. It's then the police launch a full investigation and Fred is eventually arrested. Hearing this, Anne-Marie offers her testimony, but eventually the case falls apart when Anne and Louise both withdraw their statements and refuse to testify. Thankfully, Mm. though, the children after this are still kept in foster care with only fully supervised visits allowed. And meanwhile, police continue to investigate because don't forget, the West have three children missing at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So on the 24th of February, 1994, police arrive at 25 Cromwell Street with a search warrant, at which point Rosemary becomes hysterical and both her and Fred continually change the story when asked over and over and over about where Heather is. On the 25th of February, probably sensing that the jig is up, and trying to still control the narrative. Fred West admits to the murder of his daughter Heather, but says it was manslaughter and he killed her in a fit of rage and that Rosemary had no knowledge of it whatsoever. On the 26th of February, uh, at the direction of Fred, the police begin excavating the garden where Fred confesses that he's buried Heather and surprise, surprise, multiple human being remains are discovered, at which point Fred's like, yeah, shit. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually killed a bunch of people. So between the 5th and 8th of March, six female bodies are found, each dismembered, mutilated, and bearing the physical signs of extreme torture. On the 30th of June, 1994, both Fred and Rosemary West are formally charged with murder. Fred, 11 counts of murder, and Rosemary, 9. After initially being placed under strict suicide watch while held for his trial, this is relaxed, and on January 1st, 1995, Fred West manages to kill himself in his cell by strangulation. Oh, you fucking piece of shit. At her trial, Rose West pleads not guilty, uh, but after seven weeks of trials, a unanimous jury vote is returned for 10 counts of murder, and Rosemary is sentenced to life in prison, where she still is and to this day claims her innocence. Yeah, they always do. Most recently in the news for massive controversy, because she is part of the group in the UK, don't forget she's still alive in 2020, she's part of the uh, extremely... Uh, vulnerable class of people, so she's been given a COVID vaccination. Oh, God. Ahead of, like, frontline health workers and, like, people who, you know, deserve to not suffocate on their own lungs imploding on themselves. But that's And this is in the UK as well. 
Yeah. Where they have... It's so fucking bad over there. Yeah. And they, oh they're God. like, you know what? That person that, like, killed killed 10 people, three of which were her own children, and, like, committed <laughs> horrific acts of sexual assault and torture, you get a COVID vaccine. Jesus Christ. I mean, the the only way I could ever see that being a priority is if she's working on uncovering more cases that, you know, Fred was responsible for. No, her. I don't think there's anything like that. I think she's just a piece of shit. That's what I mean. Like, if that was the case, then I'd be like, okay, that makes sense if we're going to you know identify bodies that haven't been identified or we're going to identify you know resolve cases that haven't been resolved yeah like you have a reason for us to keep you alive but if you're gonna if she's been claiming her innocence since the 90s like what what are you gonna get out of her I also, I hope, um, I hope the way I told that wasn't too confusing because the timeline kind of like goes back and forth because there's just, there's so many different moving parts. It was definitely easy to follow. It it doesn't matter if it goes, fluctuates between different dates. It's, it, it all makes sense in terms of how it progresses. It's Um, just, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not a nice story. No, it's a terrible story. Don't Um, really like that one. There's nothing, you know, that really comes out of that like it's just i guess the only the only positive thing to have come out of it or not really positive but you know like the only like good news light at the end of the tunnel story is that that i i think there were eight children that fred and rosemary had together combined at the peak and i i i think Five of those children are, you know, still alive and, you know, probably suffering severe mental trauma, but are like still alive and still keep in touch with each other and still sort of like living their lives and obviously freed from their parents now. Yeah, that's horrible. That's that, like, that's just, it's, it's one thing for physical trauma and then to step that into psychological trauma of sexual assault and then murder and forced prostitution. It's, it's a whole fucking conglomerate. Yeah. It's just like one, it's like what you said. It's like the babushka doll of just like you open this like fucked up thing and you're like, Oh, there's another fucked up thing inside that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it's not a, it's not a pleasant story. I mean, none of these stories are pleasant to tell. No, But there are those, there are those ones where you like cases where it's just kind of like, this just keeps progressively getting worse. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, you know, with Jody Arias, it's like, here's just someone who fucking flew off the handle and yeah, is a case study yeah. on to what kind of happened there. You know, this is just pure blown psychosis evil. and evil. Yeah. Fucking evil. Who does that to, <sighs> to, to children, but to your own children? Yeah. The, the severe mental the detachment to lose that medical, that uh, matriarchal connection to your kids. I think the thing that freaks me out the most about them is, you know how sometimes like you, you look at photos of like serial killers and even if it's not their mugshot, you look at like natural photos and you're like, there's just something in your eye that doesn't look right to me. Fred and Rosemary Rest just don't have that. Like they just look like what really suburban mum and dad. You think I was looking at Fred Rest West especially looks 
like a corpse himself. Like that photo of them, they just look like 1970s suburban mum and dad to me. I don't know. There's, there's, for me, there's something about the, the, them. That like, might be before their like, proper phase. I don't know. They just don't look like... Anyway, I don't know. To me, they, they don't look like... Sure. The, the horrors that they committed. But that's that's the kind of the thing is like there's no real set like look that they have. Mm. There's no real template of like this is what a, a serial serial killer looks like or a murderer or a rapist looks like. It's it's that's the whole thing is you know they can be anybody. Yeah. Anybody has that possibility of becoming that depending on but i would love to know listeners your opinion do you think fred and rosemary west look like psychos or do you think that they just look like your weird suburban neighbors maybe a bit of both maybe your suburban neighbors are serial killers you don't know and they and you don't know it maybe we're serial killers yeah wouldn't that be the ultimate like mind fuck is if like your favorite true crime podcast, which was actually hosted by serial, serial killers. killers. Nah, I'd never be able to. I like I cry at commercials on TV when no. an animal doesn't have a home. Like yeah. I can't. I'm that cancer bitch, and by cancer I mean like the star sign. I'm that cancer bitch that can't even watch. Like those sad videos of like, oh, we put this puppy in a tuxedo and then his foster parents never showed up. Like, oh. you know those photos? Yeah. I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Like, I would never be able to murder someone because I just get too emotional about yeah. puppies. Well, that was like, I don't know if we mentioned on the podcast, but you're part of a, a book club in... um Yeah. Uh, oh, if my book club ladies are listening, hi. Yeah, hello. I told them about the podcast and they um, said they were going to listen. But so. yeah, like, so you're part of a book club and when this was initially starting, um, it, it involves like a few people in, in our area, the suburb we live in. Um, and I think the first meeting, it was looking like a lot of people were pulling out, like not a lot of people could make it. And like you were showing me photos that the person hosting it to Ed. They'd made, like, the, the full-on, like... beautiful, like, charcuterie spread. And the sandwiches and, like, drinks and everything. And I was, like, nearly in tears thinking that... I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was so upset thinking that our host had gone to such an effort to, like, put out this beautiful spread and no one was going to show up. It was... There was a happy ending. It was, it was fine. Yeah. People showed up. We had a great night. We didn't talk about the book at all. We just got really drunk. It was actually... Super fun. I, I can't tell you the trauma I went through <laughs> thinking that no one was going to show up. And the the amount of work that went in, I, like like you, was about to cry thinking about it. I was it. so upset. But it, no, it was, um, it was, it was a really fun night. Yeah. Uh, side note, if, if you're new around here, this is the part of the show where we're done talking about serial killers. And we always like to try and end things on a somewhat light note. So we usually just... Shoot the shit. Shoot the shit. So, strap on in. Strap on in? Strap. I think strap in. Strap in. I think strap on in would imply something else. <laughs> strap in on. <laughs> strap in on. On. Energize. Yes, okay. How's your week been, Tama? Uh, it's been pretty fun. We haven't done that for a while. We keep forgetting to do that. We have, yeah. Uh, it's been pretty shit. I haven't really been sleeping well. Um, you know, things have been... 
Like like a You've been busy at work. And I like like we said earlier, like our cars shatter and I'm trying to figure out um a time to fix it. Uh, but you know, in a positive spin, we're getting a new, better we're car. Getting a new, much better car. Um, for for not that much more than what we paid for our current one. Uh, See, everything all, happens for a all, reason. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, friends of ours who have, have spent the last sixteen months <gasps> in Japan are finally coming Our back to Australia. Bryce and Lauren are coming back. Yeah, they from got Japan. stuck in Japan uh, during you know everything going on. COVID, with COVID, bloody COVID. Um, so they're coming back. We're really stoked about that. Hopefully, uh, they'll make it here before my birthday, which is coming up the 21st of March. Bam, bam, bam. Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really tired. I, I am struggling with energy. Uh, I feel that the, I haven't been able to go to kickboxing for, because we've had no car. Yeah. And then it's sort of bummed me out a bit, but you know what can you do? Just gotta, just gotta. You know, hope that one day I can go back. I'm sure one day. Never let go, Jack. I feel you. Yeah. Oh dear. Anyway, how's your week? Um, look, my week's not been great for reasons that we're not going to talk about on sure. the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure you know what's wrong. You can understand why I'm not going to uh-huh. talk about it on, on a public space. Yeah. Um, no, but you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to be like Debbie Downer. It's not been like a bad week. Just some stuff happened and it wasn't quite the outcome of a situation that I had been hoping for, but I'm hoping that. I'm going to be able to resolve it. That's super cryptic. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, it's the same thing with the car. It's like, it's a shitty situation that you don't want it to happen, but it did happen. And so now you just got to deal with it. Well, and it could potentially lead to an even better, um, you know, ending. Mm. Like it could lead to a better so opportunity. True. So true. Um, and that's, that's the, the thing that often happens with uh, pretty shitty occurrences and, uh, unfortunate things is sometimes the best things or things you cherish more come as a result of it. Mm, uh, so true. You know, obviously that comes with severity of what happens. You know, obviously if you, you know, get stabbed in the leg, you're not going to look at that and go, well, you know, at least, you know, I, could, I cherish times when I could walk normally. Yeah. You know, but like when it comes with uh, how severe you're talking about. Yeah, life has its ups and downs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this has been fun. This this whole uh, the the whole bed recording. Yeah, I like this. Let's keep this up. Um, we have the cats uh, joining us in the bed. It's it's just I don't know. It's it's more relaxed. I feel like it just adds to the ambiance of yeah. the whole the whole thing. It'd be fun if we did this as like a morning show at some point, and like the morning routine is like waking up. And it's like, all right, let's just do the show. Mm, Cup of coffee. Cool. It's like, you know, We could make time. like a little YouTube show out of it. Yeah. That would like be cute. Waking up with Laura and Tama. Aw. I like to, I, I get a real kick out of thinking that some people might listen to this show like on their way to work, like as part of their like morning. Yeah, like, totally. Um, well, I, I, love, know for, I uh, love that thought. I know for a fact some people do. And, uh, you know, I don't know how motivating... 
listening to murder cases is. But, you know, when you get to this point of the show, it's like, you know, anything you do today is worthwhile. Yeah. And do everything you can before the day's done. That makes you happy. Very true. Um, That got real deep real fast. You know, it's one of those things we have to sort of come back to after horrifying cases of human misconduct. Well, that's the thing. Like, it kind of, like, you talk about these horrific humans. God, my phone is blowing up. I'm sorry. Um, You talk about these horrific humans that do awful things to other humans and it kind of... I don't know, like, I feel like if you're not kind of walking, this is going to sound super corny, but if you're not sort of walking away with more of an appreciation for your own life, like, yeah. you're kind of missing the point. I think definitely with your case as well, just the the idea of you're born into this situation, you can't help. You're, that's your household. You yeah. grew up there. There's no real, and especially in the 60s and 70s, I think it was, or mostly the 70s, um, sorry. Yeah, um, like late 70s, 70s, 90s. 90s yeah. For, from that time, it wasn't very common uh, to to grow up in those households and have someone find out about it and take you away from that household. Like yeah. now we have technology and things in place. It's much easier to get to, to reach those children um, at, at a more earlier time. Yeah. But fuck, it man. It still happens. Though, it still is... happens. Yeah. That's the thing. And, and it makes you really, uh, you know, grateful for the upbringing that you have. Like even, you know, we all have our, our, upbringings have our struggles and trivialities and things we sort of deal with mental health abuse Mm. and all that like but cases like those where you just go fuck man some of the things i have in my life are just so good so i'm so grateful for uh if anything just the idea that you can sort of progress through your life without that lingering thought of what has happened to you yeah, for sure. And it, and it gives you a whole lot of respect for the people who prosper despite it. Oh, definitely. Like, th- like, like that's people the thing. who manage to rise out of that shit heap yeah. that they're handed. My God, yeah. it, it's one of those those stories. It's like anything. It's like uh, uh, to, to, to a, a completely un, um, uh, uh, unrelated stories like Conor McGregor growing up in the sort of a poor Irish household to becoming the richest uh, sports star and the athlete in the world. Yeah. You know, it's things like For that. Sure. Like people sort of progressing past their trivialities into becoming the best of what they can be. You know, it's stuff like that that really motivates you and, and you have a great Yeah, and then it, it kind of, it motivates you but also kind of makes you be like, what the fuck do I complain yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. It's like if they can overcome their shit then so can you you know? yeah for sure yeah and like and on top of that everyone deals with their own shit on their own time and so that's fine yeah don't feel guilty if you yeah. can't deal with your shit because i feel like i can't deal with my shit on an almost daily basis but just so... know that it's possible you can do it yeah yeah well i feel like this is we both had long stories yes. i can see the time and this has been a very long episode there has yes, so um, I just so- <laughs> that's like a full my full on Rick fantasy. <laughs> Morty, Morty, 
It's been, gonna, it's been uh, 10 minutes too long. Sauce. You're going to have to sh- stick this mic up your ass, Morty. Um, let's wrap this shit, shit up. up. Yeah. Thank you for, for joining us if you've stuck around this long. Yep. Uh, we are Laura and Tama from Best Served Cold. Yep. You can find us on all things social media at the BSC podcast. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, we have some new merch out. So if you want to sport some BSC merch, I think it's pretty cool. I'm a bit biased because I made it. Um, I will leave the link in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you to uh, no one for sponsoring this episode. Um, You know, we are... Thank you to us for sponsoring this episode, please. Look, we're open to talking up your products, even if we think they're garbage, which... We'll lie. You know. I'll lie for money. I'll sell everyone listening... To a degree. I will sell everyone listening to this show some fucking product they don't need. We'll sell Squarespace... We'll s- what what are the Quip. other product Quip? What are the other things that there's like a Rogaine thing, sell? like a like there's like a, a boldness thing that is definitely a snake oil pro- uh, product. Um, mm. Yeah, Squarespace, uh, Dollar Shave Club. That's the other one, Dollar Shave Club. Manscaped I'll, is a big yep, one now. Yeah, we'll spruik all that shit. The one thing Manscaped doesn't fucking tell you is that to, even though you get like a ten percent discount using some podcasters' code, is the fucking things like two hundred bucks. For a razor that shaves your junk. Yeah. That just seems But it's like, okay, excessive. cool. Mad, but like, fucking, that's so much money. Like, really? Well, for, for a razor that shaves your junk, yeah, that's that's a lot of money. It's like, man, come on. Like, for a lawnmower, $200, not a lot of money. For like a, a dick mower, $200 That's funny is a lot as of they money. call it the lawnmower as well. Did they actually? Yeah, that was really funny. I can't believe that was like subconscious. Oh, well, I'm being, uh, yeah. I'm being That's your marketing influenced. brain. Anyway. I would have been more impressed if they called it the dick mower, to be honest. Which is what I just called it. Yeah, that, that kind of like is anti-marketing. It it yeah, like it it's like, this will chop your, your dick to shreds. <laughs> Sensitive <laughs> balls? Great. You don't need them anyway. Who wants children? Yeah. <laughs> Vasectomy? For free. For $200. <laughs> That's the cheapest vasectomy you'll ever get. Stitch up is your own responsibility, though. Yeah, have some sit oh, sutures dear. ready to go. Uh, long story short, we're subject to your products being advertised on our show. Uh, <laughs> Please just give us money. If we talk shit on your products, <laughs> uh, just know that uh, you can you, change that for yeah, a you price. Can ch- Yeah, we have no morals at whatsoever. We don't like your products? Just give me a dollar yeah. value, baby. <laughs> and we will fucking love your products. And sell them to you listening. No, nah, we're kidding. We would never do that. Sure. We wouldn't. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't. Yeah, which means you wouldn't, because let's be honest, I wear the pants in this family. Yeah, well, I'll start my own podcast where I'll just be a complete dickbag. No, that's fine, because no one would listen to it. Fuck, okay. <laughs> Shit. I would listen to it. All right, you'd have one listener. There you go. Well done. One person. You can to sell, sell something shit to. to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, anyway that got it. That went yeah. to a weird place as per usual. Well, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We will. I want to say promise, but whenever I tend to promise things, something happens. So I'm going to say we're going to try our best yeah. to put out episodes weekly. We were genuinely ready to rock and roll last week. Yeah, and I mean, if you're not if you're not aware, we don't we don't do this full time. This isn't our full time thing. Where we 
have to find the time to do it. Yeah, and then technology uh, every now and then will just yeah. fail you. It's, um, so we do what we can. Yeah. So we're trying our best. But thank you again for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed it. As usual, if you want to shoot us some love mail on social media, I love that. I love getting messages shoot from you guys. Shoot some love mail. Uh, shoot your love mail right on my our face. media chests. <laughs> Lovely. Shoot your love mail on my media titties. Um, that was the wow. weirdest thing you I've took ever it there. said. You, just, well, I'm just you took it from an allegory just to forget I ever said. Yeah. That. Wow. Okay. Oh Let's God. It okay. It's just getting worse. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Stop we love you. Talking. I'm gonna shut up now. I love you all. Bye. Bye.